25 years and my life is still Trying to get up that great big hill of hope For a destination Hi, this is Rosalind Darby here again, October, local architecture now at Coast Access Radio. And um, wonderfully, we have Professor Kay Flavel with us from Vallejo, San Francisco, who is another author. And this will be a rather, a bit of a lengthy introduction. Hi, Kay. Hi, Rosalind. Good to, good to have you on. Thank you. Um, Kay has... This is the latest in her series of books that she writes, um, and uh, she's going to be talking about her book, People of the Lane, an oral history by Kay Flavel, living in and around Lark Lane, 1880 to 2020, and Lark Lane is a very vibrant street uh, of various histories, various uh, changes uh, in Liverpool, where Kay lived early in the 1980s. But I just want to context you, Kay, um, within this the series of programs we've had lately. Last month we had Professor John Rennie Short. So what you are is you're the second in a series of three of um, speakers uh, where we started with more of a global kind of macro uh, urban geography base and then we're going to jump with you over to Liverpool to a street in Liverpool which you're so familiar with and have written about here and then next month we'll be talking, bringing it all kind of more local but still actually in Auckland, and we'll be talking to the editor, um, Suzanne McNamara, editor of Uptown, which is about a neighbourhood that is strong and collectively galvanised in Newton, Auckland. So here you are, that you're the second in that series, but you're also the third and final in our series of Speaking to America. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, and obviously, uh, listeners may be interested. I've known Kay for over 20 years. She was originally an absolutely marvellous client of mine, and you might like to describe your work there very quickly around what you did in um, Mount Bruce there with the International Artist Residency, Kay. But we're here to talk about, um, well, this is, I think, maybe two, three or fourth in your kind of wonderful ability to put down into into book form the oral histories and therefore convey a character of community and neighbourhood by doing that. So, yes, would you like to add more to that and by way of introduction? Thank you, Rosalind. Well, it's very sweet of you to include me in your series since I'm a mere author and <laughs> oral historian. So my life started... Um, at the age of five, walking in the hills above Dunedin, I decided I'm going to be a writer and I'm going to go away and see the world. And I didn't quite expect that my overseas experience was going to last 37 years, but that's what happened. <laughs> and so I worked in universities um, I did a doctorate on theories of creativity in the arts and sciences in 18th century Germany. The 18th century bit was tagged on at the end. And I really have always been interdisciplinary. So I am incapable of working in a single area because one question leads to another and you find one moment you're in art history, the next moment you are in 
urban geography or anthropology. And so I'm a graduate of the University of Otago. I had a wonderful friendship with Peter Gathercole, who was teaching anthropology. And I think since then, wherever I've lived in the world, I have this obsession to scratch the ground and start finding the stories of who lived here before me. And so that's the form that my story collecting has taken. And I first discovered that in Liverpool when I had an irresistible desire to start using my tape recorder to record the stories of the community living around me. Raz, do you want me to um, refer back to our meeting? Yes, if you like. I, I, I'm going to jump ahead almost to only my little bit of, my little bit of input in contexting this, that what I loved about opening this little cachet that arrived in my um, letterbox a couple of months ago from Kay about this book was how speaking to, uh, speaking to the stories of people and allowing the people to speak for themselves actually changed, shifted something for me in that, in that the people created the architecture. They all came over decades and generations living in the one street or the nearby streets and and the people actually brought the architecture alive. So that's just my kind of angle on it. And yes, now I, I'm leaving it up to you, Kay. And more than happy to extend our introductory discussion even further. Okay. Well, I'm sure we'll get back to where we met uh, in Paikakuri here at some point. You, well, you're, you're welcome. You can, you can go kick off with that. We could kick off with that, yes. So by the mid-90s, I had decided I wanted to start working with the whole community, age 9 to 90, and leave the university world behind me. Um, so I did a degree in museum studies and cultural policy at Monash in Melbourne. And then after going back to University of California at Davis, where I still had an appointment, and the studying the field of museums, I ended up discovering that the best way to be moving forward would be to be setting up artist residency programs because what they would allow would be two things. They would allow a little oasis for individual creative work and then they would allow community outreach on different projects and because I had studied the way universities grew out of earlier forms um, different little houses of learning I hit upon the idea of calling met uh, using the metaphor of hermitages and I started talking from 1998 about the need for hermitages around the North and South Pacific. And that is how I came to meet Rosalind <laughs> on a beach in Paikakariki. Um, Janet Bailey heard a repeat of a radio program I had made in Christchurch on one of my 
return visits to New Zealand, in which I talked about hermitages. Janet sent an email to me at Davis saying, great idea, why don't you set up a hermitage in Paikakariki? I could help you. We have a wonderful multidisciplinary community community of artists and writers and creatives living here. So I went on real ends and searched for property around Paikakariki and I ended up, because of my ignorance of New Zealand geography around Wellington, buying a wonderful old concrete villa in Mount Bruce. I then called Janet and said, you won't believe it, but your invitation has led me to buy a house with five acres of land, and it's very close to you. <laughs> it's in Mount Bruce. Janet's response was silence. <laughs> then she said, well, if you're a bird... And that's how I learnt that the Tararua mountain range was actually between Paikakariki and Mount Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> but I did manage to locate this wonderful villa, which was in a very neglected state. And thanks to the brilliance of Rosalind, whom I met on a beach in Paikakariki, Rosalind and I sat in a cafe and started transforming the villa into a place with more light and through currents. And the wonderful house of Normandale became the base for New Zealand Pacific Studio for about 18 years, I think it was. Yes. And it's still So Rosalind and I began as colleagues and a great friendship grew out of that. Um, and so then running over to Liverpool again, um, my academic life started in New Zealand and then continued in different places. From 1969, I had a tenured job at University College London and then a few years later, I married um, a colleague who was also teaching in London, but moved in 1972 to Liverpool. And so from 1973 until 1983, for a decade, I was in a commuting marriage, and we tried different solutions, sometimes living in one place and sometimes in another. It's a f almost a four-hour train trip. So I would go down from Liverpool at 7 a.m. on the... Uh, sorry, it's a three-hour, not four-hour. Take the 7 a.m. train from, London, from Liverpool down to London and be lecturing at 10 past 10 in the... Mm -hmm. uh, University College. So, 1980, by then I had been working in London for 11 years, and one of those years had been spent in Princeton, New Jersey. Okay. And I had discovered 
an amazing archive in Princeton in a private home oh. of the work of a German radical artist called George Gross. And I quickly realized that the voluminous correspondence in these files had not been used by anybody. And he had written letters to all his friends in Germany after escaping from Nazi Germany in early 1933 to New York. And that correspondence had continued until um, his death in 1959. And so in the course of a year in Princeton, I decided, well, I've been an 18th century German literature expert, but I really, really want to uh, tell the story of George Gross in America. And this is an important story that has just fallen into my lap, and I don't know anything about American art history uh, or much about German art in the 20th century, but I can learn it. (laughs) And so I changed direction that year. Um, went back to London, and then in 1980 to 81, I took unpaid leave from London, and my idea was that I was going to be working on my book on George Gross, and by then I'd been given a contract from Yale University Press to work on this, but it was not as simple as that, because We rented this beautiful house in Liverpool off a Victorian street called Lark Lane, which led from a central arterial road called Aigberth Road, which is the area of the Oaks, Aigberth. So the Lark Lane ran from Aigberth Road at the bottom straight up to the entrances to a magnificent 255-acre park, municipal park, called Sefton Park. And this had been a planned development from the 1860s because Liverpool was competing with other global cities mm-hmm. to attract top merchants. Right. And so they were, the city council was very aware that Birkenhead across the other side of the River Mersey had developed a magnificent Birkenhead Park designed by Joseph Paxton. Of the Crystal Palace. And visited by um, Olmsted. Now I don't know if the name of Olmsted is well-known in New Zealand, Frederick Law Olmsted, O-L-M-S-T-E-D. But he was the designer of Central Park in New York. And he visited um, Birkenhead Park and admired it and said, if you want to make a democratic society, then you need to have a park as the green lung in the city accessible to 
people of every social class. Mm. So then over to the Liverpool side, so Liverpool is on the right side of the River Mersey from my <laughs> view, and Birkenhead is on the left side, and Lark Lane is two miles south from the city centre. So it's just on the, really still part of the city centre. Mm -hmm. So a city council um, member who had grown up partly in the UK and partly in Geneva, his father was Swiss, he came up with the idea of the city holding a international competition for the design of this big chunk of land, 250 acres, that was just farmland belonging to the Earl of Sefton. And we'll call it after you, <laughs> they say. <laughs> um, and so the design was that, that one was um, the combined effort of the chief gardener in Paris called André and an architect in Liverpool called Hornblower. This was to be the second largest park um, in Britain. Um, and the idea the city council had of funding it was that it would be ringed with villas that would be leased um, their occupants and so the merchants by deciding on building villas on these plots would be actually funding the creation of the park okay. so the competition opened in 1866 and by 1872 the park was ready to be opened mm -hmm. with lakes and grottos and stoneworks and circular paths and areas for um, horses and riders to go on their morning walk and so forth, um, bowling area, tennis courts, all of these 19th century leisure activities were to be catered for. And Lark Lane was to become the high-class shopping street where you could get a new saddle for your horse and you could call up the florists to come and arrange the flowers on the table for your dinner party. Hmm. And then on one side of Lark Lane, there were four or five wide avenues built and they had names taken from the novels of Sir Walter Scott, and they had quite substantial two-story, three-story Victorian houses built in them, which were intended for the gentry mm -hmm. and the middle classes. And then on the other side of Lark Lane were a whole lot of narrow streets with two up, two down terraced houses which were intended for the servants mm. who would be working in the big houses 
or working down on the in the port, um, but who would be living conveniently close. Mm. So it's a very interesting the social mix that was intended at the time was juxtaposing um, the different classes. And when I started walking up and down the lane in 1980, I realized that quite a lot of the elderly people who are on the lane have gone through all the transitions from the time the lane opened and the park opened in the 1980s down to the present day and what fascinating stories they must have to tell. And the other thing I found was that going in and out of the little shops, which were of an amazing variety, the shops were more like little clubs <laughs> and they would be full of people mm. who would be talking, talking, talking. And so the shops were not about just going in, buying something, exchange of money and out. They were about becoming part of this community of shared story. So I reached out. Rosalind, you suggested that the street was probably, the architecture was probably made by the people. So I reached out to two people who have contacts with the lane. And the first is Brian Biggs, who is now a trustee of New Pacific Studio UK, which we've set up. And he is an author and arts administrator um, who spent his life in Liverpool. And for some time he lived um, in the Lark Lane area. And so I pitched to him. So Rosalind suggests that people make the architecture work in Lark Lane. And Brian said, I've never really thought of the lane in terms of its buildings, <laughs> though there are some really fine ones in the vicinity. I only lived there a short while in rather fraught circumstances, and it is the social interactions in a bookshop, antique shop, the Albert, which was the big pub, and music gig or record fair in the old police station, etc., that remain with me, not the buildings. That's per so se. interesting. Arguably, the street life is what makes it a special place, if quite edgy at times, as when it had a bit of a reputation for being quite druggy. And then his third paragraph I'll also share says, it's maybe also that combination of a local resource and a destination for its eateries and watering holes that distinguishes it, probably more so now than when you experienced it in the early 1980s. Mm -hmm. The buildings are the backdrop to that social mix, and they change over time. Mm -hmm. Where I lived was a grotty flat by Hadassah Grove, which is the oldest street which was gated in the mid-19th century, which is now a Mexican bar and grill 
which may well revert to being residential one day. And then I also reached out to Anne Storer. So her last name is spelled S-T for Tim O-R-A-H. Mm-hmm. And Anne reached out to me after um, learning about our Kickstarter. And she grew up on the lane and her family ran the hardware shop where everybody would come in and out to get paraffin because they were using paraffin heaters at the time. So Anne also has written this wonderful set of comments that I'd like to share with you. Yes. So Anne says, I agree with Rosalind and think that it's how people use buildings and the built environment. Maybe it was because of all these social interactions that took place. And shop doors were almost always open, linking the buildings and the street, with shopkeepers often standing outside. So there was daily interaction. I suppose that is continuing today with the pavements taken over to cafes and the introduction of those ugly bollards to facilitate this. Mm-hmm. Um, so the bollards and a one-way street and moving the cafes onto the pavement and moving the pedestrians into the street between the bollard and the pavement is a very contested uh, response to COVID okay. and an attempt to keep alive all the cafes which have not been able to have people inside. That's my note. Yeah. So um, continuing with Anne, she says, in terms of the architecture of the lane, what I like is how the buildings are often quite different but do gel together. To be quite fair, that is common in Victorian shopping centres, but the lane is special in that it is separate from the wider bustle and Aigbeth Road with its traffic, and of course leads to the splendid Sefton Park. As a planner, I think it is people that make places, so the environment can impact, of course, on how people can relate. Lark Lane has always been a mix of generations who live there and people who move in, some who stay, but who somehow all just got on. Mm. Then her last paragraph is quite wonderful. She says, With my parents' shop, I think that what most people recall, probably even today, is the smell of the shop, especially the paraffin. I used to joke that rather than a hardware shop, or Chandler's, as my dad called it, it became a cafe, with my parents offering hot drinks to their friends. Going into a small shop with three people, perched on various oil drums, stacks of cat litter, etc., could put some people off, but only seemed to add to the character of the shop. I suppose the kindness and general interest, that without any nosiness, 
is why people went in. So I'm very lovely. What a lovely, wonderful story. And it's your generosity of letting, in again in this example, letting the actual resident speak is is part of your the way you work. And and what's so wonderful about the book is that the resident you've left the bulk of the book is directly conversations that are as spoken by the residents. So. Um, I think the listeners can see also that you're, you're a master storyteller just in this first 30 minutes that we've been speaking. Well, it's such a privilege to be entrusted with someone's story, right? And the lives we live are not the stories we tell. Um, the story has to be constructed, and so my editing skills have come into place, and I don't words in people's mouths but I can rearrange them right that's the privilege of the oral historian that uh, any rate the this was my very first book and it was begun because I had to you know I tried initially to fight off the impulse (laughs) oh I really want to collect the stories of this place and I said to myself, don't be silly. You've got to work on your George Gross book. And then would come in the voice. But this is unique, and it's changing so fast. This, this whole area is going to be transformed. Yeah. And unless I collect the stories now, they will be lost. Mm-hmm. So after a tussle for a couple of weeks, um, I decided, okay, three days a week for George Gross and two days a week for the lane. And also, there's a selfish element in our (laughs) choices. Becoming the story collector with my tape recorder, of course, turned me from a perfect outsider and stranger into a person with a function. So the story collector in her red beret is someone who then becomes part of the fabric of a community. And I think that has always attracted me. That um, Yes, I love writing poems, I love research, but I also love the thrill of collecting real life from the people. Yeah. Um. And so I think uh, listeners have heard the previous um, session, you're right in the middle of, 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 of a linkage between the bigger urban geography, geopolitics kind of uh, discipline, and then we have this local neighbourhood um, that we're going to be speaking to next month here up in Auckland. Um, you're, you've got this wonderful poetic, but also... I think very much devotion to dem- dem- democratic experience that is a perfect sort of um, linkage in these three series. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I really think, and I think just talking to you again, it's, it's just your, 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 your sort of um, unsolicited advocacy for this whole publication adds more depth to the readings I've already had, had with it. Well, it was uh, interesting how the book came to be because 
I started collecting the stories on the street with my tape recorder um, in 1980 and transcribing. And all of you who've done work with tape recorders know that transcribing takes forever. Then, unfortunately, in August 1983, I was no longer in Liverpool. I was transplanted across the Atlantic to California. And so I finished transcribing the stories. That's the first 50-odd stories. Um, in 1983, I thought, what can I do with them now? I've, I can't finish the book because I've lost touch and that was before the age of email um, before the age of the internet there really seemed no possibility of doing much with it so I, I had the tapes put on a disc and I sent a copy to the University of Liverpool and said could you please hold on to this for now okay. um, and then 40 years went by, you know, and I got caught up in many other projects. The George Gross book did eventually come out. That took me 10 years. That was published in 1988. Which was successful uh, in, in its, um, the moment it was published, wasn't it? It, it was because no one you know, had, had filled in his years in America. So it was a very uh, useful publication. And his cartoons were about people as well, weren't they? That sort of social and space. Too. And I think that definitely the fact that I was working on George Gross when I was also working on Mark Lane influenced me because the, his art was tremendously influenced by the street and the simultaneity you know, of action, mm. that everything's happening at the same time. Mm people in houses, people in streets, the transportation, things going through the air. So, mm. um, it would have been grounding for you as well, like a visitor to it, Liverpool. It totally was, yes. And so, it's grounded in real time, but you're talking about a master cartoonist, you know, in a sort of theoretical framework. Right, and so he, is, he feels that artists have to engage with the real issues and conflicts of their time and remember I've been an 18th century person and I think that what I learned from the my studies of the 18th century was actually very useful and I did do one um, paper studying the origins of the first library in Liverpool which was set up by a group of wonderful radicals including a Scottish doctor called Dr. James Curry and he would go down to the slave ships when they came into the Liverpool docks mm -hmm. and he would make medical reports which would be sent to William Wilberforce who okay. was leading the anti-slavery legislation in Parliament it took about 30 years for anything to happen, but Dr. James Curry and his circle in Liverpool and another wonderful person called William Roscoe and others, they were all fighting the slave trade. And so you had this divided city because 
most of the Liverpool, at least half of the Liverpool merchants had their livelihood involved with the trade. And then you have these other people who are saying, we have to find better solutions. You know, that this not, we all have servants who are miserably housed and not paid, but the slave trade is something so inhuman that we have to find better, more humane solutions. And so the dialogue was going on in the time in Liverpool. So I was aware that the the act of setting up a library, you know, and pooling resources which the better off professionals then made available to their apprentices and younger people, that this is also very essential to democracy because it enables the readers to be informed and then in time the readers also become writers. And so I saw this this democratic seeds at work in Liverpool in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now I'm looking at Liverpool in the 1980s. And the oldest people I interviewed, the first interview in the book is with a wonderful woman called Mrs. Margaret McLean. And I must have spent maybe seven or eight hours on different occasions interviewing her because she was so magnificent in tracking through all the episodes in her life and in her 90s she she would go down to the senior center and she would entertain the oldies who were of course much younger than she was (laughs) by playing tunes on her mouth organ she won a local competition (laughs) for her mouth organ performances. But she was so feisty, Rosalind, and she would say, they called them the good old days. Them wasn't the good old days, them was the bad old days. Okay. At least now we have unions fighting. Amazing. I'm just looking at a photo that's in the book in her section. It's a wonderfully um, composed photo, you know, with the wallpaper and the the floral shirt she's wearing and those beautiful kind of black and white photos of And the devil. photo of her husband, yes. Amazing. And, and she says here, she says her, her first job was in a local hat shop involved walking all the way from Eichberg to North John Street and back. You had to either work or starve. And that was similar to a lot of the stories in the book of, regarding employment. Absolutely. It was very, very hard. There was no benefits of any kind, and it was just hard, and they just worked. Married women always had to work, you know, the, and men never did anything to help with the children, is another of yeah. her comments. and the woman so still had to she, go and clean in the big house. children. Yeah. Yeah. Her first husband uh, was a cook, a ship's cook, and the ship was torpedoed in the north and I have that story also in the book so he was in a lifeboat that was drifting for I think up to three days and so most of the people in the lifeboat did not make it so there's a lot of tragedy in the book and 
there's comedy as well and so that to me is the charm mm. of mm. Sto- of oral history that it allows you to move up and down the scale of human experience right that's a quote from Walter Benjamin <laughs> from his, but it does. His, essay, his essay the storyteller well y- uh, your book arrived at arrived with the courier or maybe in a letterbox and I put it beside my bed to read at one point and I opened it that night and I couldn't put it down just the people the many many chapters which are just purely the words of these the the characters on the street and the residents in the street become a very ripping story you know it was a page turner and it was the people speaking themselves over generations I mean even I'm just looking on on Margaret McLean's page and the last line is um her father was a chimney sweep and I used to have to go round the houses and say to the maids please, me father sent me for the money for the chimbleys because they didn't pay him right. until he, until he yeah, I mean all that, that was that's in the very first interview but it gets and then the joy that she had the way she was able to describe what all of us can relate to going down to Sefton Park Lake in the winter and, and skating and the joy they all had of that park, you know, with all of the day-to-day activities of their lives to earn and look after their families, they still experience that, you know... The they ho- experience huge joy in the park and also on the shore, Rosalind. And it's that, that combined aspect that I, am, I see as my hopeful contribution to the community in future because... I want to try and get them thinking about maps that highlight different stories that will go from the park to the river. Because when I lived uh, there, I never really knew that. The river, so you cross Agbeth Road and you go down and through and left and right and you come to the shore. Well, in the 1930s, sorry, the 1950s it was opened, a um, promenade was built along the shore on waste that was um, shoveled from building the the bridge across to the tunnel across to Birkenhead. Um, and so the building of the promenade allows people to walk, but they're far above the shore, whereas when Margaret McLean was growing up, they would go down along the, the little creek called Dingle, and then they would be on what was called the Cast Iron Shore. Um, and there'd been an ironworks there called Herculaneum, and so that was the origin of the Cast Iron Shore, which being Liverpudlians, they, of course, abbreviated into the Cassie. Mm-hmm. So the Cassie is the cast iron shore. And so I would really love to have the promenade experience turned into a walk which enable people to have experience of the sand and the stones and the river. And so I'm thinking about ways in which I can get a museum interested mm-hmm. in can we please bring the shoreline in little segments up onto the promenade so mm-hmm. that 
children can be running their hands through the sand and there can be a creek. <laughs> but this is, this is the contemporary um, big thing, you know, in urban design right now. It's happening all over the world, is bringing the CBD down to, say, the river or the, or the shore. And here is your current occupation, you know, Occupation with a street is this next is this another stage of of how to bring the street back to its natural connections and context. I hope so. I hope so. It's so exciting, much. Kay. Well, it is exciting, and the reason. So I explained why I couldn't finish um, People of the Lane in 1983 because I was in California. The reason that brought me back is because. From 2015, when I gave up working, dividing my life between New Pacific Studio in New Zealand and New Pacific Studio in California, I became an urban activist um, in Vallejo. A woman after my own heart. Because I'm always interested in historic preservation and... In New Zealand, New, New Zealand Pacific Studio had been successful in working on several community outreach projects. So we had first set out to restore the Anzac Memorial Bridge, and the mode of working was to set up an independent non-profit so that the single vision would be on restoring this bridge and then later we set up a Friends of Morrisville again with historic preservation goals and so both of those organizations my contact with them had led me to be optimistic and to feel that you really can make social change once you've brought together a small group of dedicated people and you don't have control of the timeline. It may take a long time. But that's what, how you make your start. So in 2015, here I am now. Okay, I'm going to live in Vallejo, which is a town of 120,000 um, with a big chunk that is a sort of island just across we're at the mouth of the Napa River, and on where Vallejo's on the right bank, and on the left is this chunk of hundreds of acres called Mare Island, which was a naval yard from the 1850s until 1996. So the whole personality of Vallejo was imprinted by the fact that most of the income was linked in one way or another with the naval yard and then the navy was segregated and so desegregation didn't happen until the late 1940s so you had a society in Vallejo which was very segregated and very um, what do you mean by segregation? There was a big Filipino population and others. Any rate, I'm moving away from... When you say from segregated with the Navy, what do you mean by that? 
not to do with race, not to do with race. You mean to do geography, geographically segregated? Um, the Navy segregated in terms of employment, and it wouldn't allow anyone who was a person of colour oh. to be in a position of authority over a white. Okay. So the officers okay. were white. Okay. And but Vallejo uh, now has a, has a very large black population, I noticed when I was there. So, it's, yeah, that's very interesting yes, history. So that was also linked with World War Two. The there was a great call out to expand the workforce on Mare Island. And so the huge population of Filipino uh, and then the Filipino population started coming after the Spanish-American War, so from World War One onwards, and then um, the African-American population mainly came during what's called the Great Migration in the 1940s during the war. But there were housing um, rules, and so non-whites were not allowed to live in certain areas. The civil rights movement in the 1960s in Vallejo was fighting to enable people of color to be employed in the shops. And so until then, there were just horrible practices such that if you were not white, then you had to use the back entrance to a clothing store and you couldn't try on clothes and on and on and on. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, the, because we are now the most diverse uh, little city does not mean that we are integrated. No, we have still these different communities. Yeah. And to me, it's been very interesting as a story collector because I have been able, fortunately, to work with and across these boundaries. But back to how I became an urban activist, <laughs> um, there was a proposal to destroy um, an old flour mill uh, which had started right down on the, the shore of the Napa River in the 1860s and had continued with vast expansion um, and run until 2002. So this big cluster of buildings um, that this was to be destroyed and a gigantic multinational cement company told the community that they were going to come in and they were going to ship slag steel waste from China on barges right across the Pacific and it would be being unloaded uh, from the barges. It would be being ground in our new factory buildings within a quarter of a mile of the local school and even closer to residential population. And so I, that's what made me an activist. I decided, you know, there's one factor they've left out of this, and that is we the people. Yeah. And so I set out, again, to use storytelling as an activist tool. And I published a little pamphlet called We Live Here. Uh, stories from, from what's the heading? So, so... 
It's called We Live Here Stories from Lemon Street and Sandy Beach. And so that, that understanding of, of sort of urban infrastructure and, and like the, the coast and the, and the neighbouring township, then that was, that was a very interesting phase. And then this, I'm sorry, we've only got about three more minutes. It's a nightmare trying to, but that then made you aware of all of that work and the sort of like the urban structure of Lark Lane back in the 80s, like 30 years earlier, 40 years earlier. I went back to, yes, after we won the battle uh, in May Did you win that battle? We won that battle okay. for four years. Okay. And so in May 2019, I thought, I'm going to keep on uh, studying how other cities have adapted their industrial waterfronts to post-industrial uses. And I thought, I'll include Liverpool. I'll see, because I knew they had redeveloped their waterfront. And that's when I remembered, wait a minute, what about the Lark Lane stories? I wonder if anyone would be interested. And so two years ago today, you know, there I was in Liverpool, tentatively showing my old typewritten (laughs) manuscript to people, and they were enthusiastic. So the one thing I've left out is that back in 1980, I commissioned work from a young photographer called Tom Wood. Yes. And I said to him, work independently, Tom, and, you know, photograph people, and I'll tell you whom I'm interviewing. Um, And here's £100, which was quite a lot at the time. Right. (laughs) And so... The wonderful thing is that in 2019, going back to Liverpool, Brian Biggs, whom I met, whom I quoted earlier, he said, oh, I'm in touch with Tom, and he's had a very successful career. And so the miracle that has happened over the past two years is that Tom's photos have been joined to the old tape-recorded interviews and thanks to people uh, from around Lark Lane, which is a Facebook page, I've been able to bring the book up to date with stories of people who grew up around the lane between 1940 and 1980, so bringing in the, the children's experiences. So it's really been a whole community, a whole village, making this, this oral history happen. Yeah, yes, it's, um, Todd's looking at me and waving the last minute in front of us. I just want to wrap and say that um, the the wonderful, the photos are wonderful in terms of like social documentary and and local um, character, but also the book is also sprinkled with your sketches, on-site sketches of these buildings, uh, which I think are really full of um, sense of place as well. And then there's this new direction, which is the global village in the lane, and, and, and then this lovely photo of the ships beside a big modern museum. And people are sort of like, people do know about Liverpool, you know, me, for instance, the, the Beatles. So I think um, this is very much on the ground, kind of very much in the scene kind of feel for Liverpool, which having come from your experience around this urban infrastructural approach and activism, um, I think m- people are becoming so much more aware of that where they live is their social environment, but also how it is now being reappraised as it responds to its bigger physical environment. And, and, this, is, and this story is articulating that, Kay. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Rosalind. Pleasure to be talking with it's you. It's wonderful to listen to you. I'm just reminded of how much you've, you've moved on completely and so much more in depth from you know the work we did in, in, in um, the New Pacific Studio. It's a continuing, never-ending adventure and, and uh, lesson yeah, in storytelling with UK. Thank you so much. This is Rosalind Darby here at Local Architecture Now talking to Kay Flavel of, um, who's just produced a book called People of the Lane, a series of oral histories around a, in a, a Victorian lane in Liverpool. Thank you, Kay. My life feels still Trying to get up that Great big hill of hope For a destination This program is made with assistance from New Zealand On Air for radio broadcast and through the accessmedia.nz website. Thank you, New Zealand On Air.